The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay. <clears throat> Good morning, everyone. <laughs> so, uh, nice to see you again. So, let's uh, start the uh, suttas. And the um, sutta, as I mentioned yesterday, that's going to be the main kind of content, is the Chula Hatti Padopama Sutta, the uh, shorter sutta on the simile of the elephant's footprint. And uh, the um, nice thing about this sutta, one of the things that I always like to talk about is what are the most important suttas, uh, yeah? It's one of those discussions that you often have in Buddhist circles, uh, and people will say the most important one is the Satipatthana Sutta. <laughs> this is the most important one. Or the Dhamma Chakka Sutta is the most important one, uh, because it is the first one that the Buddha gave. Uh, yeah, that's another reason people say. Or they might say any Sutta that they really like, this is the most important one because I like this Sutta. <laughs> That's a good reason, right? That's actually quite a good reason, because if you enjoy a certain sutta and it's meaningful to you, of course it is important for you. And sometimes what is important for us is actually the most important thing here. But really the way to decide what is an important sutta, you can say they're all important or they're all equally important, but the things that you see again and again in the suttas, the things that the Buddha repeat over and over, uh, yeah, these are the things that really matter. Or, if the Buddha says specifically, this is really important, uh, this is the core message of Buddhism, uh, of course then also it is really important. That's how you know whether something matters or not. Uh. And uh, one of the things that the Buddha says is really important, and you see this in the uh, Mahaparinibbana Sutta, yeah, the Sutta of the Buddha's passing away, uh, and then there he kind of summarizes what his teachings are. And he says that, uh, well, if you want to know what my teaching are, uh, if teachings are, uh, if you want to know, uh, you know what really is important, uh, he says what is important is the 37 bodhipakya dhammas. Uh, yeah, the 37 aids to awakening. This is the essence of Buddhism, what the Buddhist teachings are. Uh, and these 37 bodhipakya dhammas, bodhi means awakening, pakya means like a wing or a side, so 37 things on the side of awakening. Yeah? And these are noble eightfold path, seven factors of awakening, five spiritual faculties, five spiritual powers, four satipatthanas, four idipadas, the kind of the um, factors of spiritual power, and then the four right efforts, yeah? 37. Yeah? Uh, factors 37 aids to awakening. This is the essence of the Buddhist teachings. So this is one way of thinking. But the other way is to look at what is repeated again and again. And one of the things that you see a lot in the suttas is this thing we're going to have a look at now, which is the uh, gradual training. Yeah, You see that in the Majjhima Nikaya, in sutta after sutta. You go to the Diga Nikaya, the long discourse of the Buddha, and you have the first 12 discourses all have the gradual training in them. So this is a core way of the Buddha, how he presents the Dhamma. So why 
is it so important? Why does it matter? Well, it, I think it's quite obvious when you see it. It sets out the spiritual path very beautifully from the very beginning all the way to the very end. And you will maybe recognize where you are on that path. Yeah, you will see, okay, I am not an arahant yet, so I must be a little bit early on, on the path, right? So you kind of figure out roughly where you are. It gives you a feeling, a very tangible way of how to approach the path and, and for what you need to do to make the path work for you. Uh, but another reason why it is so powerful is that if you look carefully at the sutta, uh, you will recognize that really it is just an expansion of the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, all the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path are there, yeah, except that they are they are kind of explained in detail and they are explained systematically, one thing leading to the next one. Uh, that, of course, is one of the very important aspects of the Noble Eightfold Path. It's just like it's not just like eight random factors kind of put together and kind of stirred up. Okay, here's the Noble Eightfold Path. <laughs> it's not like that. The Noble Eightfold Path is very systematic. Yeah. Starts with right view, ends with Sama Samadhi. Yeah, this is the Noble Eightfold Path. It's very, and the sequence is very, very significant. And that sequence, and how one thing leads causally to the next thing comes out very nicely in the gradual training here. Yeah, so the gradual training here is the Buddha arises in the world. Okay, right view. Yeah, Buddha arises in the world. The Buddha teaches that to someone else. Okay, more right view. That other person thinks, yeah, well, it's very interesting. Buddha pretty wise, maybe I should follow his teachings. Right intention. Right, then once you start thinking, I'm going to follow his teaching, then you start practicing morality. Yeah? Sama Vacha, Sama Kamanta, Sama Ajiva. Then you want to refine that morality even more. Sama Vayama, Sama Padana, right effort. Once that morality becomes really refined, especially the mental aspect of that morality, then you have Samasati, Satipatthana, mindfulness, meditation, Anapanasati, all of that. And then the outcome of that meditation is Sama Samadhi at the end of the path. And then the outcome of that again is, of course, insight and awakening itself. So the whole thing is there, beautifully set out, one thing leading to the next one. And this is what this sutta is all about. It's a very beautiful sutta that made Sri Lanka Buddhist. <laughs> That's how Buddhism started out in Sri Lanka. Yeah, So very, very powerful in that sense. So uh, we're going to look at that. And usually I just uh, tend to extract the core part of the sutta and I leave a lot of the narrative, the story, I leave that out. But this time I thought, let's have a look at the story as well. It's quite a nice story that leads up to the sutta. So we're going to have a look at everything. Sometimes it's nice to read the whole sutta rather than just to extract kind of the main parts, you know, that you <laughs> take to be important. So um, this is um, how it goes. The Shorter Sutta on the Simile of the Elephant's Footprint, the Chula Hatti Padopama Sutta, it is called in the Pali language. And uh, I'll just, uh, as I always do, I will uh, just read it out and I will comment as I read. And then uh, this evening there will be Q&A, we'll do all the Q&A at once. Is there a place to write down your questions? Yeah? Okay. Just outside. Okay, great. Yeah. So just write down your question, then we'll take those questions as we take them this evening. So, uh, yeah. All right. 
So this translation is done by uh, Bhante Sujato, and uh, there's nice to read out different translations. Bikibodi, of course, very good translations. Uh, Bhante Sujato's translations are, are a bit more modern, and uh, sometimes you need to read different translations to get the full meaning of the original. Actually, ideally, you go back to the Pali, but uh, if you can't go back to the Pali, you can read different translations. Uh, so uh, here we go. So. I have heard. At one time the Buddha was staying near Savati in Jeta's grove, Anatapindika's monastery. Now at that time the Brahmin Janusoni drove out from Savati in the middle of the day in an all-white chariot drawn by mares. He saw the wandering Pilotika coming off in the distance and said to him, so, Master Vachayana, where are you coming from in the middle of the day? So what is this all about? <laughs> so, uh, here we have the Brahmin Danusoni. He was a, quite a famous Brahmin at the time of the Buddha. He was someone who apparently is working at the court of King Pasenadi. King Pasenadi, of course, the ruler of Kosala, the great kingdom at that time. And the capital city was Savati. And Janusoni was one of the kind of main Brahmins in Savati. And he always sounded like a really posh person. Yeah all the white chariot drawn by mares. That, that is no coincidence. This means there's someone of high status. Uh, otherwise, you wouldn't be going around in all white like that. A uh, bit like some of you, you're also in all white when you come here, which is actually very, very nice. Uh, but now it has a different significance. I think this is kind of slightly different. Uh, and it comes in the middle of the day. Yeah, This is kind of interesting because the, the middle of the day is usually a time when people are busy and working or they're resting because it's too hot or whatever. So it's kind of an unusual time to come. And this is kind of the, um, the, the significance. Usually you see the Buddha in the evening because you go to hear a Dhamma talk or something. But the middle of the day is a bit unusual. And that's why this is kind of mentioned here. It's like a special occasion for seeing the Buddha. Yeah, it's kind of uh, something different than the usual. And so as he is driving out, and because Janusoni is a person who is very interested in spirituality, he sees this wanderer coming along, Pilotika. And so he says to him, yeah, where are you coming from? This is weird. You're kind of wandering around in the middle of the day. You should be relaxing somewhere. You should be doing your meditation or whatever. You shouldn't be wandering around in the middle of the day here. So where on earth are you coming from? Just now, good sir, I've come from the presence of the ascetic Gautama. What do you think of the ascetic Gautama's lucidity of wisdom? Do you think he is astute? My good man, who am I to judge the ascetic Gautama's lucidity of wisdom? You'd really have to be on the same level to judge his lucidity of wisdom. Master Vachayana praises the ascetic Gautama with lofty praise indeed. So how do you think he is wise? And... Uh, <laughs> And this is what we are looking for in a spiritual teacher. Yeah, we're looking for someone who has that wisdom. Uh, because uh, why? Well, because wisdom is the highest of all spiritual qualities. Uh, 
Yeah, wisdom is what guides you in the right direction. Wisdom is what makes you understand what is worthwhile and what is not. Wisdom is what leads you to happiness and away from suffering. Wisdom is the thing that holds everything else together. And then he says, who am I to know if he is wise? Yeah. And this is a beautiful, because sometimes in our modern world, maybe not just the modern, maybe always, we tend to be too conceited. We think that we know when we don't. We think that we are wiser than we actually are. We tend to kind of dismiss the ancient wisdom. Yeah, we got iPhones. What do, what, what do we need Buddhism for? If we got iPhones, we are obviously far wiser than the previous generations. Yeah. But actually, there are, there are certain things, and we tend to be too proud of our contemporary culture, as if somehow we are superior. Yeah? But I think in many ways, we're actually inferior. <laughs> yeah, but we just, what we do instead, we have all this hubris, and we think we are wonderful and great and whatever. Yeah? But actually, in terms of spiritual qualities, often I think our society is kind of a bit lost. Yeah, we don't really know what we're doing. Yeah? And we should be so happy that we have these ancient Buddhist teachings. So this idea of being humble about our own knowledge and kind of being open, that maybe even ancient people two and a half thousand years ago, maybe they were superior compared to us in certain ways. And I would argue that in terms of spirituality, there's a lot of things to be said for these ancient people. They were actually quite wise. So it's good to be humble about things. It's good to understand the limits of our own wisdom and insight. And you may remember that famous verse in the Dhammapada, which says that uh, uh, the person who is uh, who knows their own ignorance, yeah, they are. Uh, if you have an understanding of your own ignorance, you are wise at least to that extent. And that's beautiful, yeah, because if you're ignorant about your ignorance. Uh, <laughs> you have a problem. Yeah? You're not going to find a solution because you don't get it that you are. You know, you have a long way to go. Huh? So actually, understanding and being accepting of your own ignorance uh, and having some knowledge that is actually very useful. Huh? And I don't know. Sometimes I don't know if in, during my own monastic life, uh, sometimes I get this feeling. Uh, this kind of visceral feeling that I don't really understand. Uh, yeah, that I'm on this treadmill, uh, on this kind of journey around samsara, moving on from life to life, uh, without really understanding what is going on. Uh, and it's like this fear, not fear maybe, but this kind of sense of, wow, this is dangerous, kind of feeling arises. Uh, I don't know if you've had that feeling, this feeling that suddenly is as if you understand the lack of your own insight into what is going on. Uh, and you, there's this big thing happening there in the background, which you don't really see here. Uh, and we get this feeling, wow, I've got to do something. Now is the time. This is dangerous. I have no idea where I'm heading next. I'm going to keep on going on this treadmill around and around from life after life unless I do something. It's kind of scary when you say that. Not really scary, but it gives you this, ah, now, act. <laughs> do the right thing. You know what I mean? And I... Sometimes because you understand that actually you get this glimpse, this feeling that you don't really understand what is going on. And that window closes again. You lose that sight and you kind of go on. You're, oh yeah, whatever. And you kind of have too much breakfast like we had this morning. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So, you know, and so it is very useful to remember that sometimes. Come back to the teaching of the Buddha. Allow the Buddha to tell you about right view. Tell you about what the world really is like. To kind of open up that sense of, of um, 
urgency in this practice because the consequences of not doing it are just so humongous, enormous, and uh, literally frightening if you understand what is going on. Uh, It's important to be humble, important to have some feeling for our own limitations as human beings. Uh, So, and so this is kind of nice, yeah, this wanderer who has gone to uh, the Buddha and talked to the Buddha, Pilotika, and he has this humility, yeah, and he says that the Buddha is wise. One of the nice things about ancient India is this um, uh, is this kind of communication between the different religions. Yeah, people would talk to each other. Pilotika, obviously, he was not a Buddhist because he wouldn't be called a wanderer if he was a Buddhist. He was some other religion, yeah, or he was a Jain or a Jivika or whatever. But he goes to the Buddha and listens to the Buddha. Isn't that nice? Yeah, they kind of come to each other. They are, they are seekers of truth. They are not dogmatic holders onto something. Yeah, I am a Christian or I am a Buddhist. I'm going to hold on to this regardless of what happens in my life. Yeah, or I am a Muslim. Yeah, go away. This Muslim is best. Islam is best. Or whatever it is. These days we seem to have all these clashes between religion. We're not really open very often to other religions. And that's kind of, in those days, they were open, yeah? They visited each other and they learned from each other. They were really seekers of truth. They were not holding on to religion because of a sense of identity. This is my identity. I'm a Buddhist, yeah? Don't threaten Buddhism. If you threaten Buddhism, I'm going to kill you if you threaten Buddhism. And sometimes some Buddhists are like that. Isn't that the case? And it's terrible. It's the wrong way of being a Buddhist. I'm going to kill you because it's too much identity there, too much I am this. And then you lose this feeling of uh, actual, we are all there to search for truth, to find, to understand reality as it actually is. This is what the Buddha says it is all about. It is not about clinging on to dogmatic ideas. Then we, you know, and then. And so this is kind of one of the beautiful things about the time of the Buddha. There was this kind of spiritual, a lot of arguments and discussions, yeah, and a lot of kind of search and less dogmaticism and holding on, grasping firmly to your own teachings and ideas. So, yeah. And then he says... Uh, Master, Va- Master Vachayana praises the ascetic Gautama with lofty praise indeed. Who am I to praise the ascetic Gautama? <laughs> he is praised by the praised as the first among gods and humans. Who am I to praise the ascetic Gautama? <laughs> it's good, isn't it? I, it's sometimes we don't really understand the... Um, People in the world, we don't understand who is worthy of praise, yeah. And this is kind of kind of interesting. Yeah? You see people praising yeah, various monastics or other lay people, or they say, "Oh, yeah, this is an arahant." Yeah, actually, you don't know who an arahant is. Yeah, this is the part of the problem. We don't know who those people are. Yeah? Or we say, "Yeah, this is a really good monastic." You don't probably don't even know that who is a good monastic. Maybe we all scallywags behind the scenes. Yeah. <laughs> It's hard to tell, isn't it? Uh, you kind of see me sitting here, and of course I can sit here for one hour and look really kind of cool and look like the real deal, but uh, it's hard, <laughs> hard to really know what actually is happening here. And so very often we don't know, and we kind of praise, and we kind of give this praise, and kind of the praise doesn't mean very much. 
And I always have looked at my own life, and sometimes you see how you get addicted to the praise of other people. You want to get praised, right? But I often think to myself, well, who are these people who praise me anyway? Do they know anything about me? Do they really have any deep understanding? And very often the people who praise us are just as clueless as we are. Sometimes they're less, less clueless, so what does their praise actually mean? It doesn't mean very much, right? We hold on to the praise of others, but because they don't know, it, it's meaningless anyway. Forget about other people's praise, right? They don't know what they're talking about. Don't be addicted to something which is meaningless. And the same thing with other people's fault-finding mind or blame. If someone else blames you, again, it's kind of completely irrelevant. They don't know what they're talking about anyway. So who cares about whether they blame you or not? So all you have to do is you have to look at yourself to know if you're living with integrity, with kindness, with care, with compassion, with understanding, with metta and all of these things. And if you are, then you're on the right track. And if somebody praises you for having good qualities, well, good on them for getting it right. <laughs> That sounds a bit uh, kind of uh, good, on, <laughs> bit conceited, doesn't it? But uh, yeah, good on you for kind of understanding that I'm a really good person. <laughs> but it's true, though, isn't it? It's true that if other people see the good qualities of somebody, actually, they have got it right. And if they blame you for something worthy of blame, then thank you for pointing out a fault in me. Yeah, I needed to see that. One of those, I always like to point this out on every retreat, that uh, the Buddha says, there's another beautiful verse from the Dhammapada, where the Buddha says, if someone points out a fault in you, it's like they're pointing out a treasure. Yeah, how often do we react like that? Yeah, okay, I, Venerable, I like to point out a fault in you. <coughs> I, I'm very hard to find a fault in Ajahn Nisarano, but, uh, so I we don't know, but... If you are going to do that, right? How often do we say, oh yeah, please, I would like to please uncover the treasure. <laughs> we don't think like that, right? But the point is that sometimes we can't see our own faults. We don't want to see them. We are too proud. We have an identity which says whatever. And if someone points out your fault, you kind of get upset with them. Yeah, shut up. I don't want to hear about the faults. But instead we should... Of course, a lot of fault-finding is, is completely pointless because a lot of time people fault-find because they have ill will or they are angry or whatever. Of course, then it isn't very meaningful. But if people come from a good heart, yeah, if someone like Ajahn Brahm says to you, listen, listen Ajahn Brahmali, yeah, you have these problems, yeah? <laughs> okay, I would listen, right? Because it's Ajahn Brahm. And Ajahn Brahm comes from kindness, it comes from, you have a feeling that he has your best interest at heart. Uh, and then you listen to that uh, uh, criticism that you get from someone like Ajahn Brahm. Uh, actually, very rare that Ajahn Brahm criticizes anyone anyway. So sometimes it's, please tell me something. <laughs> I need to hear more. Yeah, too many defilements. Tell me what to do. Uh, but still, he, he refuses to listen when I say that. So you had to go with it. <laughs> But um, remember that. It's a very beautiful way of taking criticism, yeah? when you are open yourself up. And uh, even if someone comes slightly from the wrong place when they criticize you, it can be worthwhile listening to what they have to say, because it can be very useful sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. So, um, yeah, so he's praised by the praise. That's first among gods and humans. 
And this is one of those other things that are always very interesting in Buddhism. Uh, this idea that the Buddha is first, not only first among humans, okay, we kind of get that, uh, but first among gods. Uh, yeah, and this is where we turn the kind of established hierarchy, we turn the established hierarchy upside down, because the traditional hierarchy in the world is the gods are on top, yeah? God, you have the supreme God, then you have kind of many other gods kind of coming down, then the humans are kind of down here, and then the animals and whatever. It's kind of a hierarchy. And that hierarchy holds for almost any religion in the world, yeah? Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, whatever. You have that kind of hierarchy. In Buddhism, no, no such hierarchy. The Buddha is on top. Gods don't often know what they're talking about. Yeah, if you ask someone from a, a theistic religion, you ask them, oh, you know, how do you know that there is God? Oh, I saw God. Uh, all right, what did you actually see? Oh, I get, get, got this feeling of, you know, loving presence, of really powerful, whatever. Uh, right, okay, so you had that feeling, but how do you know it was God? Uh, actually, you can never know that something is God. You can, all you know is that you had some kind of feeling or some kind of experience. Uh, and people do have such experiences, yeah, of some kind of uh, special power or maybe even a god or whatever. Yeah? And uh, sometimes it can be very awe-inspiring. If you see a powerful light, uh, you get a feeling of powerful presence or whatever it is. It can be so overwhelming uh, that you end up bowing down and you say, okay, this is, this is it, I found God uh, and I'm going to pray to you for the rest of my life. Uh, but be careful, uh, these may be very powerful things, but it doesn't mean that the wisdom behind that is also complete. It may be limited. And in the suttas, you often find that the gods, they don't know. They're clueless. Yeah. You find that in the, there's some very, I did a retreat not so long ago where I talked about what can we learn from the gods yeah, in the suttas. And that was actually quite interesting because I went through the suttas and looked at kind of all the passages with gods in the suttas. And what you find is that the gods are pretty much like us. Yeah, they have their cravings, they have their desire, they get angry, they fight battles sometimes. The higher you go up the hierarchy, the less they have of these things. But still, they are kind of, you know, at the end of the day, they don't really know what's going on. And even Brahma, who is the highest god of Hinduism, in the end, he's ignorant. And you see some suttas about that. So we have to be very careful. And this idea that the Buddha is above the gods is one of those really unique things to the Buddhist teachings. All other religions tend to have a god at the top of the hierarchy. And this is what makes Buddhism so, to my mind, interesting and powerful. Because the Buddha is a human being. He is among us. We can relate to him directly. You can't, how much can you relate to a god? A god is some kind of pie in the sky. Yeah? You, you don't really know what it is. A Buddha is a human being just like us. There's something very tangible, makes Buddhism much more tangible, much more immediate, much more relevant to our daily lives because we're dealing with humanity here. We're dealing with something we can understand and relate to. So there are a lot of things about Buddhism that make Buddhism really, really unique and, uh, and beautiful, in my, my opinion. Uh, and I don't think I could really be interested in any other religion. I don't t tend to be a very religious person. Uh, spiritual, maybe, but not really religious in a traditional sense. Uh, 
But Buddhism is different, uh, and that's why I can be a Buddhist, even though I could never be a Christian. To me, Christianity, certainly the dogmas of Christianity don't make any sense to me. Although there are aspects of Christianity that are beautiful, the dogmas I have a really, really hard time with them. Anyway, so first or best among gods and humans. Uh, but for what reason are you so, have, do you have so much faith in the ascetic Gautama? Abhipassana is the uh, Pali word here, uh, which means like faith or confidence. Yeah? How, how come you have so much confidence? Uh, I'm not sure if devoted is quite the right word, because devoted makes it sound like you are a disciple already, but he's not really a disciple. He's more like he has gained confidence in him. So sometimes I must admit I disagree a little bit with uh, the good Bhante Sujato's translations. But anyway, I, this is not the time for me to criticize him too harshly because he can't defend himself. I'm sure he has a good defense. <laughs> so, um, and uh, then he gives this simile yeah, for why he has so much faith and confidence in the Buddha. Suppose that a skilled elephant tracker were to enter an elephant wood. There he would see a large elephant's footprint, long and broad, and he would draw the conclusion, this must be a big bull elephant. In the same way, because I saw four footprints of the ascetic Gautama, I drew the conclusion, the Blessed One is a fully awakened Buddha. The teaching is well explained. The Sangha is practicing well. So here we have the beginning of this fairly long simile. It's going to be continued afterwards of the elephant in the elephant wood. How do you know that there is a really large big bull elephant? How can we know this? And is it really enough to see the footprint? And uh, the answer is probably not. Yeah, the footprint gives you some idea. The footprint may give rise to faith and confidence, uh, but it's not really sufficient to know that it is a bull elephant. Uh, and it's the same thing on the Buddhist path. We can have a lot of faith and confidence in the Buddhist teachings, uh, but uh, uh, and you can get that faith and confidence by seeing some of the traits of certain people. Yeah, you can see the characteristic of someone who is practiced really well. You can see the peace when someone is very peaceful. You can see, feel the metta of someone who has very powerful metta. And these are all kind of things that lead you in the right direction. They give you a sense that there's something beautiful going on here. But you don't know that this person is a big bull elephant. You don't know. I'm using that term on purpose because the Pali word is naga. And naga means a large elephant, but it also means like a great human being. It also means the dragons, right, or snakes, that kind of thing. It means all of these things. So uh, the, you don't know that that person is a big bull elephant. How do you know that they are a big bull elephant? Well, you have to see that elephant with your naked eye. When you see that elephant, Okay, then you know this is a big bull elephant. You don't have any doubt anymore because you have seen it with your own eyes. And it's exactly the same thing with the spiritual path. One thing is faith and confidence. Another thing is the actual seeing of what is going on. And these are two different things. And it's very useful to make that distinction. 
Because if we don't make that distinction, uh, you can very easily get into arguments about all kinds of things. Know when you have faith and know when you know. Yeah, these are different things. So, for example, uh, you know, when most people who are Buddhist or whatever, uh, they know that they, that they have faith, that there is rebirth, for example. Uh, they have faith that uh, uh, the Buddha was awakened and all of these kind of things. But we don't know these things. So if someone challenges you and says, yeah, rebirth is rubbish, yeah, you're superstitious Buddhists, yeah, you say, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe. I don't actually know. Maybe I'm superstitious, yeah, but whatever. Yeah, so you, you realize that actually you don't know. Yeah, and you don't take it so seriously. And in that way, you avoid getting into arguments. This is my teaching. Shut up. Don't want to hear that there is no Buddhism. Yeah, this is the real thing. And then you argue with them and you get really upset because they kind of say, oh, the Buddha, he didn't know anything. Yeah, he didn't even know iPhones. How can he possibly know anything? Yeah, if he doesn't know about iPhones. These are the kind of the modern wonders of the modern world. And so... You can see the difference there. You know when you have faith and you know when you know. And if you really know, no one is able to ruffle your feathers anyway. Yeah? If you really know there's rebirth, if someone says, yeah, yeah, rebirth is rubbish, you just shrug your shoulders because you know it's true. You don't really care about it. But if you don't know, if you only have faith, well, actually, maybe the other person has a point. Yeah? Maybe you should be a bit humble. Even if they are not humble, at least we should be humble about these things. So that distinction between knowledge and faith is very useful. Uh, and you realize you don't have to be dogmatic about these things or to be too strong about them uh, because you understand the limits of your own uh, understanding. Uh. But also remember that if someone else says that rebirth is rubbish, uh, it doesn't mean you should give up on the idea because they don't know what they're talking about either. Yeah? It may be that you are just coming from faith and confidence, but the other person may be even more clueless than we are. And because they're even more clueless, it doesn't mean you should take on their ideas. It just means that you continue believing in rebirth. I mean, if the Buddha says so, how much more evidence do you want? If the Buddha said, there's, isn't that good enough? The Buddha says there's rebirth. For me, that's good enough. If the Buddha said there's rebirth, that is the highest kind of evidence you could ever want. So uh, having f just recognizing that something is just confidence and faith doesn't mean that we take on board the ideas of others because they are often just as clueless, sometimes more clueless, most of the time actually more clueless than we are. So you still hold on to your ideas, uh, but you don't hold very hard. Uh, you don't get into arguments over them. Uh, you just allow it to be. You recognize the limitations of your own understanding. Uh, and this is what this is about. Uh, yeah? You see the footprint. You think, yeah, very interesting. Wow, this is really cool. Uh, like you come into the presence of somebody. We'll see in, in a minute how Pilotika meets the Buddha and is very impressed by the Buddha. Uh, yeah, and uh, I'll come, come back to that in a second. Uh, and then that, that's enough to awaken these things. So let's see what happens next. Uh, so he saw the four footprints of the ascetic Gotama, and from that I drew the conclusion. Yeah, that was the first mistake he did, to not draw a conclusion. Uh, his Nittangata is the Pali, I think that's what it is elsewhere. And Nittangata means come to an end, come to a conclusion, exactly like in English. Uh, uh, the Buddha is fully awakened. Uh, the teaching is well explained. Uh, the Sangha is well practiced. Uh, yeah, these three things always go together. 
Um, the Buddha is fully awake and Samma Sambuddha, Bhagava. So once you have someone who is fully awakened, then by definition, whatever that person teaches is going to be well explained because it's coming from right view, right understanding here. And because the teaching is well explained, there will be people who practice accordingly and who have good results. The Sangha is well practiced. Yeah? One thing leading to another. The three always go together in this way. Yeah? So once you have the full awakening, but it has to be the full awakening. If it's only partial, then the teachings are not going to be well explained. The Sangha may be practicing for a different kind of goal. So it has to be the full awakening. So we really have to make sure the Buddha knew what he was talking about. So what are these four footprints of the ascetic Gautama? I see some clever aristocrats uh, who are subtle, accomplished in the doctrine of others, uh, hair splitters. Uh, you would think they live to demolish the convictions with their intellect. Uh, they hear, so gentlemen, the ascetic Gautama will come down to such and such village or town. Uh, they formulate a question thinking, hmm, we'll approach the ascetic Gautama and ask him this question. Uh, if he answers like this, we'll refute him like that. And if he answers like that, we'll refute him like this. <laughs> this is ancient India. They were in India always been very fond of uh, discussions, uh, yeah, especially in spiritual circles. Uh, and uh, sometimes that can be very beautiful to have a discussion if both parties are interested in understanding and knowledge. A discussion can be very useful. But if both parties are there to kind of boost their ego, then discussions can become very painful and very, very difficult. So these guys here, obviously, they are there to boost their egos. Yeah, you will refute him this way and that way. So they, it's kind of about winning the debate rather than actually listening to what is going on. So... Um, this is the problem here, yeah? So they kind of come up with this strategy, how they're going to refute the Buddha. Yeah, they can imagine what that is like. And these are called aristocrats. Aristocrats here is the kshatriyas or the kattiyas. This is the, it was considered the highest caste at the time of the Buddha, sometimes translated as nobles, but I think aristocrats is probably a better translation. It kind of gets more to what this is about. And uh, they go around demolishing the convictions of others. <laughs> Ooh, scary. So they're going to meet the Buddha. You can imagine it's going to be interesting. So what do you think happens? Do you think the Buddha is going to convert? And Buddha is going to kind of say, yeah, yeah, you guys, you're right. I was wrong. Uh, probably not. Uh, so this is what happens next. When they hear that the Buddha has come down to that town, they approach him. Uh, the ascetic Gautama educates, uh, encourages, fires up, and inspires them with a Dhamma talk. They don't even get around to asking their question to the ascetic Gautama. So how could they refute his answer? Invariably, they become his disciples. <laughs> when I saw this first footprint of the ascetic Gautama, I drew the conclusion. Uh, the Blessed One is a fully awakened Buddha. The teaching is well explained. The, the Sangha is practicing well. Yes, they can imagine what it is like. They come, they approach the Buddha. They are full of themselves. Yeah, they have all of these ideas how they're going to refute the Buddha. And uh, then the Buddha just gives them a teaching. He starts off here saying, Oh, how are you? Are you well? Nice to meet you. And I think already at that point, 
some of those uh, ideas they had already starts to fade. Because you can imagine, imagine the Buddha says to you, how are you? Uh, how, would you <laughs> how would you feel? You can imagine, you come to this person who is just so peaceful. You have such a powerful sense of compassion and kindness. Uh, you can feel like the wisdom in the background. Uh, yeah, sometimes you feel that even being with more ordinary people, you feel some monastics or maybe even lay people have this very beautiful presence about them. Uh, yeah, sometimes I can sit and I can listen to Ajahn Brahma, uh, and I sit in the hall at Bodhinyana Monastery and I feel peaceful just listening to his voice because uh, there's a power to it. Uh, yeah, there's kind of a, there's a peace, presence of peace that is very beautiful and powerful. Uh, and you sit there and you just feel peaceful. And I can imagine the Buddha much more peaceful. Yeah, the Buddha can imagine getting into his presence. So the Buddha says, oh, how are you? Have you had enough to eat? Where have you come from? Are you tired from your travels? These are the kind of things the Buddha says in the suttas. And you feel cared for. You feel looked after. You feel someone is out to support you and to be kind to you. What happens with all that ego? <laughs> what happens with all this conceit that I'm going to refute the Buddha? Well, it fades, right? Because in that kind of presence, you can't really sustain that conceit because you feel that there is a sense of connection there, a sense of warmth, a sense of kindness. And then the Buddha gives them a teaching. Yeah, well, oh, you travel from afar and he gives them a simple teaching about whatever. And usually the Buddha's teachings are quite simple. And the more you hear, the more you kind of give up that own view, that own feeling of asking questions. And there's a story I always like to talk. This is a story that Ajahn Brahm tells and is found in one of his books. And I've told this at this retreat before, but it's a very beautiful story. This is a story when Ajahn Brahm met this very famous monk in Thailand called Ajahn Tet. Yeah? It's a very, very nice story because Ajahn Brahm, like in Thailand, it was very common in those days. I'm not sure what's happening now. When Ajahn Brahm had five reigns as a monk, he goes out and travels, travels around the, the Isan area, the northeast of Thailand, to visit all the great monks. Yeah, so he visited people like Lung Tamahaboa and he visited a large number of these famous monks at that area. And one of the monks he visited was Lumputet. Yeah, Lumputet, very, very famous. Uh, he had, the king had kind of built him this big mandapa, which was kind of like a big building that he was staying in. Uh, and so Ajahn Brahm comes uh, to his monastery. Yeah, and he kind of looks around. Where is Ajahn Tate? He doesn't know where to go. He sees this big mandapa, this kind of beautiful, ornate building built by the king for this very famous monk. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you've seen some of these temples in Thailand. Very beautiful temples, colorful, uh, white, but with kind of gold and blue and colors on them and all of these kind of things. Very beautiful temples. Uh, and so he doesn't see Ajahn Tate, so he goes into this mandapa. Huh? And he looks inside. Yeah, he has all these questions in his mind. Oh, I'm going to ask him this. He's not going to refute him. He's not, he's not, he's not as conceited as these people. He doesn't say, I'm going to refute Ajahn Tate. <laughs> he, I'm just going to come to ask some questions. Yeah, so it's a bit different. Uh, so he goes into this mandapa and looks around. Oh, no one here. Oh, wait a minute. There's someone over there in the corner. And he sees this kind of old monk sitting in the corner. But he realized straight away that how come I didn't see him first time? And the reason I didn't see him first time is because he almost fading into the brickwork, fading into the background. Because if someone has a very small sense of self, it is almost as if they're not there. 
Yeah, the reason that you see people is often because they advertise themselves. I'm here. Yeah, <laughs> I'm present. Listen to me. Yeah, or whatever. We make something out of ourselves because of our sense of self. But if some, the more enlightened you are, the more you kind of fade into the background. So when you see someone who is very special, you shouldn't look for someone who kind of stands out from the crowd. You should look for the person who fades in the crowd, who disappears in the crowd, yeah? They are the enlightened ones because they have no sense of self. They don't want to stand out. So straight away, Ajahn Brahm got this faith. Wow, there's something amazing about this monk, yeah? He almost isn't there. Even though he's there, he's not there in a sense. It's a beautiful paradox. So he goes into the hall goes over to Ajahn Tate, bows down to him, and then he sits down. He doesn't know what to ask anymore. Because all the questions have disappeared. Yeah? Because when you are in the presence of that kind of kindness and care, you just want to kind of sit there, and you want to bathe in that kind of kind feeling of this person. You don't want to ask any questions anymore because you feel peaceful inside. Beautiful. Yeah, it's really beautiful. All the questions become irrelevant. Who cares about questions? I'm getting this direct transmission just by the presence of the person. The osmosis, kind of, the qualities seep into me from outside. Yeah, the transmission through osmosis. Famous kind of transmission. Not found in the suttas, but still. <laughs> I'm just messing around. Please, please forgive me. So, um, and this is kind of that story, and this is, I think, similar to what these people here were experiencing with the Buddha. Yeah, They come into the Buddha's presence, there's nothing more to be said, because you just listen. And then, of course, having listened to the Buddha, I think, sadhu, 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 uh, may I, you know, may I take the, may I go for refuge for life? It's the kind of thing you see at the end of suttas. Oh, we, you know, I go to the refuge for the to the Buddha Dhamma and the Sangha uh, for life. They always for life in the suttas. We don't do it for life anymore these days, but in in the old days, you did it for life always. Uh, that's what how these things come about. Uh, just the presence of somebody can be very powerful in this way. But it's still faith. It's not knowledge, right? This is the important point here. Uh. So. Uh, he comes to the conclusion, a little bit prematurely, but uh, comes to the conclusion. And then he sees other people doing the same thing, clever Brahmins, uh, clever householders, uh, and they too become his disciples. Furthermore, I see some clever ascetics, uh, these are the Samanas, uh, who are subtle, accomplished in the doctrine of others, hair splitters. Uh, you think they live to demolish the conviction of others with their intellect. Uh, they hear, so gentlemen, the ascetic Gotama will come down to such and such a village or town. They formulate a question thinking, will approach the ascetic Gotama and ask him these questions. If he answers like this, we'll refute him like that. And if he answers like that, we'll refute him like this. When they hear that he has come down, they approach him. The ascetic Gautama educates, encourages, fires up, and inspires them with a Dhamma talk. They don't even get around to asking the question to the ascetic Gautama. So how could they refute his answers? Invariably, they ask the ascetama for the chance to go forth. And he gives them the going forth. Soon after the going forth, living withdrawn, diligent, keen, and resolute, they realize the supreme end of the spiritual path in this very life. 
They live having achieved with their own insight the the goal for which a gentleman (laughs) rightly go forward from the lay life uh, to homelessness. Uh, This is what gentlemen do, okay. (laughs) So don't turn the page, stay on the same page. Don't don't go forward too fast, Uh, sorry. (laughs) So, um, Right, so here we have the ascetics, and of course the ascetics, the samanas, uh, they are a bit different because when they understand the doctrine, they because they are already ascetics, uh, because they are already kind of practicing in the right way, they just uh, want to continue to be ascetics. They then become disciples, the monastic disciples of the Buddha, yeah, and that's what they do. And then after becoming monastic disciples, uh, it says here, it says soon, soon after going forth. Uh, yeah, they realize the supreme end of the spiritual path in this very life. Soon after going forth, cheapest. Uh, how is that possible? How can you be? This is, this is like becoming an arahant. Yeah, you go forth, and then a few days later, soon afterwards, you become an arahant. Is that right? Hmm. And this is an interesting point in the suttas when it says soon. Yeah, soon kind of doesn't really mean soon, right? It doesn't mean like, you know, uh, next few days or whatever. You, you might think it means soon because in the Satipatthana Sutta it says, yeah, if you practice Satipatthana then in seven years, you can become an Arahant or Anagami. No, not seven years, six years. No, actually five years, all the way down to seven days, right? So kind of that, maybe that's what they mean by soon here. But no, I don't think it means that at all. If you know the context, Usually soon means something like 20 years, yeah, 30 years, 40 years maybe. Yeah, in this life, that's kind of soon. Remember the context in Buddhism is always this big samsaric uh, round of birth and death. And in that context of the big round of birth and death, soon is even you know, many lifetimes. But here we're talking about this very life. So actually, in that context, it is very soon. It's important to remember that. Um, and when we read in the Satipatthana Sutta that it can be done in seven days, well, I would say that is under very, very special circumstances. Only it can be done in seven days. So again, we need to understand these things in the right way. Yeah. So they become arahants, yeah, and they achieve with their own insight the goal for which gentlemen, maybe gentlemen and gentlewomen, rightly go forth uh, from the lay life into homelessness. Uh, the reason why it says gentleman there, the Pali word is kula putta, and putta means like a child, usually means like son, but it means a child in the broader context, and kula means a clan, yeah, so it's like a, a clansman, it was translated by Bhikkhubodhi before, her. but uh, this kula putta means someone who comes from the establishment, yeah, the establishment are the householders of ancient India, uh, that's why they call. That's why he calls them gentlemen, because a gentleman in English is someone who has been well educated. Yeah, someone who comes from a good family. Same kind of idea. A gentleman is not some kind of scallywag. Yeah, it's kind of some some upstanding part of society. And in the same way, in Buddhism, we often talk about the kulaputas going forth, the establishment, the upstanding members of society going forth. And there's an important kind of. Um, uh, it's an important idea behind that, the fact that the kula puttas go forth. 
Yeah, the idea is that uh, it is not just a kind of a religion uh, where you, if you have no education and you're really stupid, you have no intelligence uh, and you're really poor and your life is just completely miserable, you think, yeah, my life is meaningless, I might as well become a monk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah then you think, maybe the, 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 that teaching doesn't have so much value, right? The whole point of Buddhism is that regardless of your position in society, it is worth going forth, it's worth becoming a monastic, a monk or a nun. Why? Well, because actually it doesn't matter so much whether you are well-educated or badly educated or rich or poor or intelligent or stupid, life is pretty much the same. Yeah, life, the suffering in life is the same for everyone. And this path is actually as valuable for you, whether you are wealthy or poor or whatever you are, whatever status you have in society, it is equally valuable for you. So this is just to say that gentlemen, yeah, even the people of the highest spheres of society would go forth. In other words, is a path with real value, a path that touches on the essence of what it means to be a human being. It doesn't matter where you come from. Yeah, I I remember when I became a monk. Yeah, my my father said to me, "Well, I didn't bring you up to become a monk." <laughs> <laughs> and it was interesting, yeah, because they had a very different ideas of what they wanted me to become. Yeah, it was like, oh, didn't become okay. No, I of course it did because he didn't know anything about Buddhism. How on earth could he possibly bring me up to become a monk? It's impossible. Yeah, it would have, it would have been a kind of a miracle if that was the case. But uh, so. It's just that we have the completely the wrong ideas uh, about the spiritual path. And what was very interesting was to see that transformation. Like we see that transformation in my parents. Uh, because when I started off, they were really against me becoming a monk. They thought I was crazy. We, you know, you have all this education. Yeah, you, you come from a good background. What on earth? You want to kind of be brainwashed by this sect in Australia? Are you nuts? What, what's going on? We write you out of our testament. We don't want to don't want to see you again. I, I can, they never said that. Never said it. I'm, I'm just adding for effect. But <laughs> so they were. <laughs> so they, they they were really they were very unhappy. Yeah, sometimes people people from Asian background they tell me, oh, you're very difficult to go forth when you come from an Asian background because your parents want to get a good education, work really hard, become a doctor or a lawyer, engineer, and kind of be the pride of the family. And you, no way, we kind of send the dum-dum, the kind of last son, okay, he can become a monk, but not kind of the, 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 <laughs> the those who are intelligent to have some potential in life. Yeah, they, they're going to have no way they can become monks. This is a kind of a standard way of thinking here, yeah? yeah? But it's actually it's a completely the wrong way of thinking. It is the intelligent one who should become a monk, yeah? Or the intelligent girl who should become a nun. Why? Because they, if, especially if they're hardworking, they have the right attitude, and they will be able to be so powerful in the world to share the method of the Buddha and to the teaching of the Buddha and, you know, bring Buddhism, bring this beautiful teaching forward in the world. We don't really understand what's going on. That's why we say these things. If you really, if we really understood, we say, get on with it, become a monk, for goodness sake. What are you wasting your time with a PhD? Forget it. No more PhDs. Yeah? Now is the time to put on those robes. That's what we should be saying. We don't get it. <laughs> but it's the same thing in Western families. Asian families think that it only happens in Asia, that you hold on to your children. No. It's the same thing in the West. Yeah? Same thing with my parents. But what was very interesting for me was that I then, I was very stubborn. I said, yeah, okay, whatever. You can, you know, it doesn't matter. 
And then over time, uh, they turned around. Uh, over time, over the years, they started to realize that there was something very powerful and beautiful going on here. And they came around completely. I mean, really, really completely. Uh, until eventually, they also basically became Buddhist. Especially my father, he was very interested in Buddhist teachings. Uh, and uh, before, he would occasionally, once a year, they would go to church because I guess they felt like they had to go to church or whatever once a year because there were churches in the neighborhood. But they weren't really Christians, but you know, whatever that's what people do. And he said, yeah, church teachings, just nonsense. I'd much rather listen to the Buddhist teachings. Uh, so my father listened to my teachings online. It was like kind of a miracle. Yeah, I, I don't know how that happened, but that's what he did. Uh, and basically became a Buddhist. Uh, and this is the power of these things, yeah, the very, very powerful teachings. Uh, you eventually you turn around uh, and uh, then uh, kind of things uh, become different as a consequence. So very, very powerful teachings where basically everyone, regardless of your status in society, uh, this is something for everybody uh, because it overcomes this massive problem of existence uh, that we all have to face, death, uh, suffering, uh, problems. Uh, some of you have experienced more suffering than others, uh, but it's there for every one of us, uh, and this is the issue at hand. So, gentlemen, go forth. Yeah, this is like um, a statement to say that these teachings are really, really worthwhile. And then they say, we were almost lost, almost perished, for we used to claim that we were ascetics, Brahmins, and perfected ones, but we were none of those things. And now we really are ascetics, Brahmins, and perfected ones. When I saw this fourth footprint of the ascetic Gautama, I drew the conclusion. The Blessed One is fully awakened. The teaching is well explained. The Sangha is practicing well. It's because I saw these four footprints of the ascetic Gautama that I drew the conclusion. It goes twice there. When he had spoken, Janusoni got down from his chariot, arranged his robe over one shoulder, just like this, yeah, raised his joint palms towards the Buddha, Anjali, and expressed his heartfelt sentiment three times. Heartfelt sentiment is the Udana, yeah, the famous book Udana, Udana Udanesi. Homage to the Blessed One, the Perfected One, the Fully Awakened Buddha. Homage to the Blessed One, the Perfected One, the Fully Awakened Buddha. Homage to the Blessed One, the Perfected One, the Fully Awakened Buddha. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddha Sa. There it is in the suttas, uh, this famous phrase that we still repeat in the present day, goes all the way back to the suttas. Many of the things that we say in the present day have no nothing in the suttas at all, but this one goes there, right back to the way in the suttas. Uh, and so does the uh, going to the triple refuge, yeah? Buddhang Saranangachami is also found there in the suttas. Uh, so all of these core things are part of the suttas. Uh, and then he says, hopefully some time or other I will get to meet Master Gotama and we can have a discussion. So that sounds exciting, doesn't it? Discussion is coming up. 
So uh, I'm just kind of leaving you there, hanging here. Yeah, not going to tell you what that discussion is to make sure you come back this afternoon so you can follow, <laughs> follow the discussion of Janusoni uh, and the Buddha coming up soon. Yeah. So that is all for this morning. Yeah. So please uh, carry on enjoying yourself. Uh, have a nice lunch. Uh, and we'll see you back again at 2 o'clock this afternoon. Let's just pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha.